Welcome to the Marshall Graham Interviews. Today I'm going to share with you an interview that I recorded on March 8th for my Econ 265 class with Travis Stone, the race caller at Churchill Downs. At the time, Travis was preparing to call his eighth derby and his first sort of real derby since 2019. So I hope you enjoy the interview. And again, we're once again sponsored by Mill Ridge Farm. They stand Ask Performance. They stand Aloha West. If you need uh, sales help, if you need consultation uh, for breeding, if you need a place for your broodmares, check them out. Joined by Churchill Downs race caller, Travis Stone. Uh, welcome, Travis. Let me just uh, first ask about your background. How, how did you get into racing and then uh, ultimately race calling? Sure. So I grew up in, uh, and thanks for having me, by the way. I grew up in upstate New York in a small town called uh, Scroon Lake. Uh, very small. There was, I think, 13 or 14 kids in our graduating class. But the benefit of it was we were only an hour away from Saratoga, and my dad was a racing fan, and we would take trips down there all the time. And I just fell in love with it. I'd go to the track, and I was old enough where I could run around and sort of explore the races while my dad sat and handicapped, and I'd go to the jocks room and go to the paddock, and I'd find myself on the apron by the rail watching the race and watching Tom Durkin call races. And I just fell in love with the art and the craft of calling races and would go home and pretend to call races on my own and use computer games or uh, I'd race marbles when I was really young, matchbox cars, what have you. And I just called these races. And when I was 13 or 14 years old, I wrote a letter to Tom Durkin and said, hey, I think I want to be a race caller. Can you tell me what to do? And he wrote me back. And for context, getting a letter from Tom Durkin is like getting a letter from, uh, you know, Bob Costas or uh, uh, Al Michaels, like he's, you know, the, the goat of what he does. And uh, he gave me some advice and I was sort of on my way from there. And what what was the big break? Because you obviously it's, it's you know, tricky to, to get in the door as a race caller. What was what was your break? So there's one thing my parents like really impressed upon me was you know, if, you, if you really want to do it, just go after it. Um, full bore. And so during college, I'd come home for the summer and I'd, I'd write for a horse racing newspaper in Saratoga and just try and build up the resume as much as I could. And then I went to auctioneer school uh, one summer as well. Again, just trying to build up the resume. And it was all of those efforts that just sort of got my name out there. And when the job at Louisiana Downs in Shreveport opened up, they were given my name as a potential candidate. I went down and interviewed, and, and next thing you know, I was packing up the car and driving halfway across the country to go call races. So it just was a lot of networking, uh, a lot of you know, well-known announcers out there, Larry Comis, Tom Durkin, all helped and played a role in, in some aspect of everything. And it was all because of the just the hard work and the, the grunt effort I put in. I mean, I, when I was working in Saratoga during the summer, I remember sleeping on the floor on a borderline mattress and waking up at five to go to the backstretch and interview trainers and going to the races and then coming back that night and writing stories. It was a grind, but uh, it paid off. So it's just a little bit uh, of good luck along the way. And I, and I practiced calling races ad nauseum. I called races all the time as a kid. Uh, it was sort of my thing. I babysat my brother during the summer. My parents had an oops baby. And so I'd stay at home and watch racing and call racing while he was, you know, watching Blues Clues or whatever, and it just sort of developed. And how much, like, when you when you sent your application to Louisiana Downs, did you have 
did you have some race calls on file or did you send send sort of tapes of 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 mock race calls uh it's interesting i did not apply uh mark midland who was in charge of racing there called me and uh you know mark very well and uh and he had he sort of uh on blind faith just just said, you know what, I think this is somebody I, I, I want to call and, and maybe hire. So I did have a demo. I had called a few races on the roof at Saratoga into a tape recorder. And so I, I had a demo. But honestly, I don't think it mattered with Mark. I think he was just ready to, to gamble on it anyway and just hire somebody young. And uh, it worked out that way. But I did have a demo. Chowders first, I think, won the demo race call. I don't remember him. He was a York Red Sprinter. But anyway, so I had one, but it was not – in many race calling jobs nowadays, you, you present a demo, you put all your best race calls together and you send them out. I didn't have to do that for this. What did you learn from auctioneering school? Did that turn out to be a valuable experience in terms of preparing you for race calling or, or. Yeah, there's um, auctioneers. So I went to St. Louis, Missouri for eight days, watched Smarty Jones lose the Belmont while I was there. And uh, I remember there, there was hundreds of us. And it was a very awkward scene. You'd, you'd stand up in the morning as a big group and you do these vocal exercises, 5, 10, 15, 20, or Betty Butter, bought some butter, but she said this butter's bitter type stuff. And then you'd break off into little groups and you'd, you'd bid call, you know, the actual auctioneering part. And uh, I had practiced it a little bit because I'd worked at it uh, for a real estate auction firm doing their website in high school. So I could bid call a little bit. And I get up in the front of this room one day and I'm just, I'm nervous. I can just feel it. And my, my throat is tight and my voice is much higher. I'm not relaxed. I'm not loose. And I can't remember the instructor's name, but he was a cowboy from Texas. And he had a huge bell buckle and a big cowboy hat. And he was just the, the exact what you'd expect. And he interrupted me and he came up and he says, I'm going to give you some advice. He goes, you sound, you know, in a real Southern draw, you sound real nervous. And I said, yeah, I said, I'm just, I'm on edge today and I'm not, I'm not feeling it. He goes, before you start talking, I want you to do this. Go bing, bong, bing, bong. He goes, do it. And I go, bing, bong, bing, bong. And so that bong, that lower bong, the last bong is where you want to start talking. He goes, you're being, you're starting up here and it's going to be tough. You, there's really nowhere to go. You can't really go higher. You're just, you're tense already. If you go bing, bong, bing, bong, and you start down here, you have your entire vocal register to, to tap into as you start to talk. And he said, whenever you get on a microphone, before you get on the mic, go bing, bong, bing, bong. And uh, that advice is gold. That advice was worth everything. Uh, auctioneer. I mean, it was a long week by myself in St. Louis, Missouri. But that was worth it. And before I called my first derby, uh, I, I did the bing, bong, bing, bong to, to just try and get, you know, and I still do it before big races or if I connect, you know, because I'm human. So I'll feel the nerves build up at times and uh, I'll do it to, to help. Bing, bong, bing, bong. Start down here. Welcome to Churchill Downs. Not welcome to, you know, welcome to, you know, so. No, I guess that's right. I guess once you get to the high part of your vocal range, you can't come down. So you got to be careful of that even during a race, right? Well, yeah, because then, what happens is when you're, when you're tense like that, your entire upper body is tense. And so your breath starts to shorten as well. And when, when you lose your breathing, when you're public speaking, you're toast. I mean, it's, it is literally all downhill from there. So it just, it's all about maintaining a good sound, um, good vocal control and, and, and breathing control. And when you're starting up high, there's, there's, you're tense 
It's, it's pretty hard to relax. You're not going to relax in the middle of a speech if you start out nervous. It's just it, the mind doesn't allow it. Well, tell me about the beginnings of your racing career, starting out Louisiana Downs. Do you remember your first race call? Uh, I do. Um, it was a sloppy track. I can't remember the name of the winner, though, uh, but I remember the experience quite well. It was Oaks Day. We started out, it was 2006 on Oaks Day. And uh, when it was raining, it was a nasty day, but they, they crossed the wire. And I remember saying to myself, okay, this, this is what you wanted to do. This, this feels good. Go on with it. And uh, so I spent the first uh, eight years of my career at Louisiana Downs. I don't, I don't know if your students will totally uh, appreciate sort of what you and I know about Louisiana Downs, but for a while there, it was a great racetrack and it, and it was hopping along real well. They had a race called the Super Derby, which always would attract a good horse every year was sort of the one day we built up for. It allowed me to really get involved with sort of the operations of the racetrack as well. Um, By the end of my time there, I was managing post times and like putting the race calendar together and and helping us find the optimal time to run races. And we had some really good success. You know, obviously the the market collapsed there in like the late 2000s and that pinched it pretty big, but it was just, it was a great experience. And, And obviously from a lifestyle perspective, I'm not in New York anymore. I'm in the South. So it was sort of an you know, an adjustment there of what life is like in the South as opposed to the North. And so it was just, it was a great sort of first round of, of racing experience. And, you know, the other thing was we didn't run during the Breeders' Cup. So I went to all the Breeders' Cups in the fall and, and got to experience that. And it was just, it was fun. I mean, I would not trade in. I mean, maybe eight years was a little bit longer than I probably really wanted to live there. But obviously in our profession, there's not a lot of gigs that open up. It's, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty tight race at all times. So that's the way the, the cookie crumbled, if you will, but uh, it was fun. I enjoyed it. So what was, you went from there to what Monmouth park? Yeah. In 2014, I got the job at Monmouth in New Jersey, uh, which is, you can see the ocean from the booth. That's how close it is to the water. I remember vividly, the, I mean, Monmouth was a racetrack that didn't run a lot of days. Uh, they ran a decent, it was a decent schedule, but for me in Louisiana, I had a, I had a year round job and it was just, it was a much more, uh, if you will, comfortable lifestyle. I was just, I was more secure. Monmouth though, I was now going to go back to the ranks of like an independent contractor, work only on a day rate. And the number of days I was going to work was significantly less. So it was, it was basically, it was a massive pay cut. And I just kept saying to myself, if I don't take advantage of this, I might be calling races in Louisiana for the rest of my life. And I decided to do it and figure, you know, so luckily it's only like four or five hours from where my parents live. So for that summer, I drive down to New Jersey for the weekend, call races for three or four days. And on Sunday night, I jump back in the car and drive five hours back to my parents' house for three or four days back at their place during the summer. And did that for a year. And, and then things really happened. That's when Churchill needed a new announcer. And in that December of that very year, I got offered the job at Churchill Downs. So it's kind of funny, like, had I not taken the job at Monmouth and, you know, risked the whole lifestyle change again and the pay cut and all that, I, does Churchill even, A, know about me or want to make that move? It's sort of one of those things where it all happened real fast. But, but yeah, that's how it went down. Well, tell me about like your process of calling, uh, you know, just a regular race, like 
from, from, you know, the last race ends, you call out the winning prices and everything. And then you have like 20 minutes to prepare uh, to call the next race, go through kind of your process from beginning to end. I will say it does start a little bit before that. I will typically, when I wake up in the morning, I'll look at, you know, as you know, racing draws three or four days out of the race. So I'll look at whatever card was drawn yesterday, get a sense of who's running, make sure there's no, names that I have to be concerned about and sort of a, a very early preliminary look at the field, but the real work begins uh, before the race and the 15 to 20 minutes before the race where, you know, there's 10 races on any given day. I'll look at the, the horses in the race at 15 minutes to post or so just kind of get a sense of what's going to happen. Is there anything you got to be thinking about? You, you don't want to get caught off guard with anything goofy or is there, is there a, a really talented horse coming back off a long layoff. You might not remember, but you want to be ready for it, you know, in case there's another big performance or goofy names that you maybe had missed during the prelims. But the real work begins when they come on the track at about 10 minutes to post. I take Crayola markers and I take the silks the jockeys are wearing and color them on the program and commit the horse's names to memory using those silks. And, and one thing I learned from Tom Durkin was to do it in, in groups of three. So I memorize the first horse and I'll look at the silks and I'll say the name three times. Then I'll go to the second horse, look at the silk, say the name three times, third horse silk, say the name three times, and then go through the first, second and third horse three times again. So you'd sort of do them in that sequence. Then you go to the next group of three and you do those three in the same, the same manner. And then you put all six of them together and then you go to the next three and onward until you have the full field covered. And then you just, as they're going to the gate, you just whip through the field, you use your binoculars and you look at each horse and you try and say their name without having to peek at your program with the colors and you just commit it all to memory. And then when the gates open, it's all about calling upon, I have a book of words and phrases and things to think about when calling races. And it's all about pulling those things out of the memory bank and describing the action appropriately and uh, ideally accurately. So it's, it's really about memorization. And then once they cross the wire, it's out. It, is, it removes itself from the brain. I've had people in the booth before. They've crossed the wire and they'll ask me who won. And I don't even remember. I, it's, it's already out. Like I'm already, I've already wiped the slate clean. I'm terrible at remembering people's names because I just have, my brain is so trained to be short term. Uh, in and out, in and out, in and out. So, but that's the whole key. If you can't memorize, you can't call the race. You're, you're going to struggle. What do you try to do? You handicap the races before, try to get an idea of, of sort of the, the flow of a race. Yeah, absolutely. So, and then ideally, when when you do that, you also have some potential things in mind to say that might be appropriate given the context of the race. Uh, if you know that the race is loaded with speed, you might refresh your memory a little bit on okay, there's going to be a speed duel here let's think about a way to describe that or let's think about uh, some potential phrases that could capture that moment. You really do that. We could talk about that when you call big races like the Derby, you have a lot of that stuff down for an everyday race. You have a list of things and you just hope that your brain calls upon them. And that's, that's sort of the effort there. So absolutely. It's uh, and the other thing is you, you become intimately familiar with the riding styles of the jockeys. So I know, for example, um, a, a guy like Ricardo Santana Jr., who's a regular rider, he rides at Oakland and, mm -hmm. and tends to be more aggressive early on than a rider like Julian Leperu, who rides in Florida and Kentucky, who's a bit more passive, really more of a turf rider. And so you, you sort of 
understand what they're likely to do as riders in the race as well. And you have things in mind for that too. So it's really about, it's no different than if, you know, everyone in your class were to come to the races and we're going to bet the races and play the races. I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm just not trying to build bets. I'm trying to build race calls, just trying to understand the race as much as possible. So are you to the point where like you can identify a jockey on a horse without necessarily knowing anything else? So yeah, in the, uh, I'll tell you, uh, a moment in the, I think it was the 2016 Derby. That was Nyquist, right? There were two horses in the race, Exaggerator and My Man Sam. Both of them had very similar silks. They were sort of a teal and green with a pink line going across the front. And in the sun, they looked exactly the same. Like they were both washed out. And it was sunny that by the time the race came around that day. And they're on the far turn, and both my man Sam and Exaggerator are closer types. I mean, they come from off the pace. And sure enough, I come to one of them, and the, and the, and the silks just look like the other. Like they both look the same. I can't really tell who's who. But I do know what Kentasormo looks like in a saddle. And he was on Exaggerator. And so that's how I knew it was Exaggerator. So yeah, a little nuance like that you can pick up on. And my binoculars are real strong, too. I mean, I've seen horseshoes fly through the air before when, when a horse loses a shoe, which helps. So you can, you can really zoom in quite well and see things, uh, little nuanced uh, elements like that to help you get there. Do you, are there are there particular challenges at, like, different tracks, like blind spots at uh... – Anything unique about calling particular races or particular tracks uh, that you have to pay attention to? Oh, absolutely. You know, a place like Churchill, the booth is is six or seven stories up. And when they turn into the stretch, they, they literally turn straight at you. So all you can see is the tip of the jockey's cap, the front of the horse, its shoulders and its legs. You can't see the silks. And so you have to have an idea of who's who before they make that turn in. At a place like Monmouth, the the booth is, oh, I want to say it's a good, uh, probably 30 or 40, maybe even 50 feet before the wire. So you can't really make photo finish calls there easily because you're just, your angle's horrendous. Even at Churchill, my booth's right before the wire. It's not right on the wire, it's right before. But Churchill's racetrack is not parallel to its grandstand. They they sort of form a V. And Hmm. so the photo finish at Churchill is doubly confusing because if, with the way you look at it, you feel like you're parallel, but you're not. So not only before the wire, you're also not parallel. Uh, that makes it, I don't call very many photos at Churchill because it's, it's very confusing every time. So every racetrack has little nuance like that that you just have to think about. And, and you know, we have a wall at Churchill now inside the chute uh, in the backstretch. So I have to call first part of many races off the TV. And, you know, and then you have to transition from the TV to the live just you know all these little things like that just pile up you just got to get used to them though it's part of the job what uh uh what's the most challenging place where you've ever had ever had to call the races uh the hardest place i've ever sam houston where our, our friend nick calls is very low very low he's on the second or third floor uh that's that's that was challenging i called there once I've called races at Aqueduct where there was fog and I couldn't even see them. That was, that was pretty brutal, but I would have to say the, uh, I've, I've been a little bit lucky in terms of, of the booths I've had to call and I've had no real egregious obstructions. Nothing. I couldn't just lean left or right to look around. There are some, some rough spots out there. The, the, the worst part about Churchill is the booth can get pretty high and uh, I run hot as well. So it like makes for a, can make for a brutal day when we're 
in a, you know, early summer afternoon. But if that's the only complaint, then I'm probably doing fine. <laughs> well, tell me about the call in the Derby. You called your first Derby in 2015. Obviously, it's, it's, obviously it's unique with its challenges, but, uh, but tell me about the, the Derby itself. Yeah, so yeah, the first Derby I called was 2015. I'd never been to the Derby. So I was going to Churchill Downs on Derby Day, having never called the race before, and it was uh, going to be my first time ever. So one thing I did do was I asked anyone that had called the race before for advice, and, and thankfully they were all super helpful. So I remember spending an hour and a half on the phone with Tom Durkin while he was driving back from Florida, and he just gave me a big pile of advice. And uh, <clears throat> it was truly, it was money. Uh, he, he gave me a couple of pointers that they're, they're actually really interesting. So the, the challenge with the Derby, anybody that's seen the Derby knows there's a lot of horses, 20 of them. On a typical race day, there's probably eight in every other random race, but there's 20 in the Derby. Uh, and obviously it's the Derby. So there's just excitement. There's 150,000 people there the energy, the crowd. As a racing fan, it's the one race you look forward to the most. So my whole effort when getting ready to call the Derby is to try and stay as calm and cool and calculated as possible. I've, I've called, I don't know how many I've called now, seven or whatever the number is. I've done that pretty well, except for one of them. Uh, one of them I got a little bit wigged out week of. So it's about staying calm. I don't listen to my old Kentucky home. And <clears throat> the, whole, the whole key uh, to call in the Derby is you obviously got to memorize them, but they're horse. I mean, you could memorize them. You know, horses that are leading to the Derby, you know, who everybody is. So that part's not hard. What's hard is getting through the race when they break out of the gate and you hear, you can hear the crowd. It is so loud. And then they come down the stretch and you're used to seeing eight horses every other day. And now there's 20 of them. It is a wild experience. And Durkin said this, he goes, Obviously, you want to get through the entire field once, announce every horse's name. He goes, you're going to call the first few horses, and it's going to be, okay, I got this. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the groove. And then you're going to call the next few, and then the next few, and you're going to realize that you've called eight of them, and you still have 12 to go. And he goes, and your brain's going to start to worry. He goes, keep going. And you're going to call the ninth horse, the 10th horse, the 11th, the 12th, and the 13th, and you're now they're going to be on the first turn, and your brain's really going to say, uh, you're screwing this up. Like you haven't even gotten to the, the last few horses and they're heading to the back. And he said, ignore it. Keep going. He goes, and then you're going to get to the 15th, the 16th, the 17th. And he goes, and now you're really going to panic. You're going to really feel the nerves because you're like, oh, my gosh, I've still got horses to go. This is taking forever. He said, keep going. He goes, you get to the 19th and then the 20th horse. And he goes, you're going to feel like you've, you've, you've lost the race already. He goes, we're going to look up and you're going to get the half mile time, which is at the time of the first four mm -hmm. furlong. And he goes, you're going to look at the field and there's going to be five furlongs to go. He goes, I promise you, there's going to be five furlongs to go. He goes, and then you're just going to call the horse race. And I, I mean, I can't even tell you how spot on that advice was. I remember on the first turn, it was just like, this is taking forever. I was nervous, taking forever, taking forever. And then sure enough, I look up. And I get to the 20th horse, whatever the number was that year. I get the half mile time and there's five furlongs to go. And you just call for a minute, five more furlongs of the race. That, that advice was, that advice was money. It was, it's, and every year I have to remind myself of that. You feel like you're taking forever to get through the 20 horses. This other piece of advice was 
when that when they turned for home at Churchill to get us a mental snapshot of who's who before they make that turn because you will not be able to see them. That that advice uh, was sound as well. That was that was really good advice. It is true they turn for home at Churchill. You don't know who they are for a few seconds, which feels like an eternity particularly in any race, much less the Derby. And then he said at the eighth pole, so when they're at mid-stretch, literally about 12 seconds left to go, he says the winner will be within five or six lengths of the front. They're rarely coming from farther back than that. So don't worry about the huge crush of horses you see in the background. Focus on the horses, you know, within those lengths of the leader. The winner is going to be one of those. So, um, but the advice of keep going was, I mean, I, I know it's inside baseball, but it is so true. It is. It was. It was right on the money. So how? I mean, uh, give me a sense of like your binoculars. Are you, if you're looking back at like the 17th, 18th, 19th horse, do you still have a gauge of what's going on in front? Or are you? Does your binoculars cover the whole field? Or are you just panning through, looking fairly closely what's going on back? There? No, it's 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 a pan through, and you know, a lot of announcers have. Uh, sort of gotten negative feedback or ridiculed for missing things in a race. Mm-hmm. The thing is this, when you're watching a race on TV, you can see the whole field. Mm-hmm. The camera's zoomed out. When we're calling the race, we are zoomed in. And so you can only see what you see. Mm-hmm. If, if something happens outside of your binocular vision, you know, I mean, unfortunately, we only have two eyes. If we had three or four, we could see, you know, everything at once would be fine. Um, so there've been incidences, incidents where, uh, horses have gone down or there's been an incident, you know, a, a, a horse pulls up or what have you, or somebody gets into some trouble and the announcer missed it. But if, if you're not looking at that spot mm-hmm. at that time, you're just not going to see it. And it's not like a baseball game where all of the action sort of centers around wherever the ball is, right? A race is a huge, especially the Derby, it, the, the field's going to span a hundred yards. So like, there's a lot of, uh, of real estate to cover. Um, so yeah, you can miss some of those things. The one thing I do and you have to do is you do briefly pull your glasses down to take a, a wide view, a wide snapshot of the field. And, and every once in a while, if something does happen, you know, sort of the, just the movement of the horses or the jockeys, somebody will react to it. You can tell a jockey did a weird thing, like, Oh, something must have happened. And you can quickly pull your binoculars down and maybe see or catch what, what, what occurred. Um, but for the most part, it is, you know, there's a lot of luck in that aspect of it. If you're not looking at it, you can't see, you can only see what you call, you know, you can only call what you see. Let's look at a couple of these derbies, uh, which was, which was the most challenging derby to call? Uh, justify. Hmm. So what year was that? 18. 18. Yeah. What, yeah. what was, what was, what was, uh, cause he, he was uh, pretty much out front the whole time, wasn't he? Yeah. But it was absolutely miserable. It was the weather. It was rainy, misty, foggy. I remember uh, Maggie, the girl that does social media for the Derby, at one point was standing out on the track, just drenched. And she had said to the guy that runs the track maintenance group, she goes, This sucks. <laughs> it was really, it was that bad. It was just an absolutely miserable day. And there were a lot of horses in that race with, with the same silks. Justify was in the Windstar colors, if I remember correctly, and so was Advice. And there was somebody else in the same silks as, as Justify. So, you know, you memorize silks, but now you have to, and, and talking about little, like little things, when they turned for home, Justify for Bob Baffert had a blue shadow roll. And that was the only way I could be certain that it was him. I knew it was him throughout the race, but, you know, your brain is working so fast. Mm-hmm. And, when I verified, and I looked at it, I saw the blue shadow roll. So I said, oh, it's definitely Justify, you're good to go. 
On the far turn, you'll hear a, a real quick pause when I try when I get to a horse, and it was Vino Rosso who had the Saint Elias silks on, which are dark green in the mud, looked completely black. Mm-hmm. So, like I sort of had to do a double take there uh, to make sure. So that, that was that was a really hard that was a really hard race to call, um, just from the from the perspective of the of the elements. Um, and then the maximum security call for a similar reason, which was the next year. Was it the year after yep. Justin? The next yeah. year. Forget about the DQ for a minute. The fact that on the far turn, I think 10 horses made moves. Yep. Um, every time I look up, there was another horse making a move, another horse making a move. And then uh, Country House, who, I mean, let's be honest, nobody we know touted, all of a sudden is like right there. And it was a moment of panic, like, oh my gosh, who is that? And I was like, house and just you know the prep that you put into the derby of, of getting the horses in your brain ahead of time came through um so that those were two back-to-back brutal years um from a variety of perspectives mm-hmm. i guess both were muddy tracks it was dark right they may have had the lights on um, yep. what was the tell me about the dq what was it 26 minutes uh i guess do you just wait like everybody else yeah it's funny i mean i um so they came in and let me know that there's a, an inquiry and I was just, I don't know. My story is, is sort of not very sexy because I was just so happy the race was over. Like my job was done. The best part about Derby is when it's over for me. Um, uh, that's, that's my favorite part of the day. And so I was just happy that it was over. And then they come in with this. Uh, he's, he's told me that there's an, or it's an inquiry. Was there an inquiry objection? I think is how he, he said it to me. I can't remember. It's been so long, but um I remember I just announced it like I was announcing an inquiring objection on a random Thursday in June. <laughs> it was just like, oh, here it is. It's just, I've done it dozens, hundreds of times. So that when ha- that happened. And then my buddy Joe was in the booth with me. We had one other, there was one other guy in the booth with us. And um, I know those stewards very well. I work with them every day at Churchill. And I watched a couple of replays and I told them, I said, I think this horse is coming down. And my booth is right next to theirs. So I can hear them a little bit through the wall. And of course, it's the derby. So like we're all being very quiet because we want to hear what they're saying. And, uh, and I could just, t- I couldn't hear word for word what they were saying, but I could, I could sort of pick up on the tone and the discussion. And I was completely convinced this, this, horse, that's com- this horse is coming down. I can't believe it. And uh, sure enough, down comes the horse. And uh, Barb, who uh, the, the chief steward, I remember came out afterward and I told her, I said, I tell you what, I got a lot of respect because that, that's really hard to do. If you're a steward, you know, it's like, do you, do you really want to call the guy out at home for the Grand Slam walk-off? I and mean, sort of what you're doing, but right? you're making a really tough call. And they made it with conviction. And I remember she said, she sort of made a gagging reference, like, I just want to go home. <laughs> it, was, it, was, uh, it was quite wild. And then, of course, then it got dicey. I mean, there was the entire facility booed. You could hear the booze in the booth really well. It was really loud. Um, you could just tell there was uh, a lot of angst. And I remember calling, I called Greg Bush, or I called the media department, and I said, you might want to get these stewards, uh, somebody to walk them out of here. Uh, just because, like, we have to walk through the crowd on our way out. And this is one of those things you didn't really expect. And I remember eight police officers showed up upstairs after that. And so for the last two races of the day, we had eight police officers in the booth watching the race, hanging out. And then we all left together after the last. It was uh, it was just such a wild experience. 
obviously a, a historical experience too. But for me, I was just happy the race was over. I was, I was like ready to go home and have a beer, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I guess that makes, I never thought about it, right? You're taking down the favorite and putting up a 60 to one shot. Uh, obviously yep. that would be a, uh, the crowd would be a crowd that's been drinking all day would be pretty anxious, right? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, crappy days are wet. They're probably chilled. <laughs> just like, you know, now, now I won this race and now a few minutes, 26 minutes later, you're going to take the winner away from me. And oh, by the way, the horse you're putting up, nobody bet. <laughs> so it's, it's just, you know, just a wild sequence. What about the following year? We had a September Derby. No one was there. Right. Was that uh, also a surreal experience? Yeah, that stunk. I mean, I think um, if you were to really ask, uh, in fact, we have some group texts of people that work at church and we've all talked about it. I think everybody did their best to put on the show and to make it as, as derby as you could. But it was not the derby. It was not the derby at all. In fact, I went down halfway through the day and it was just the most depressing scene ever. And uh, not that Authentic was not a deserving winner and Tisdala was a good horse to run second, but the field had been, the field had been whittled down by then. You know, there were some non-derby horses in that race that year because just the way that it all shook out. So it was sort of one of those, you know, you, you, you put on the show, you do what you can to, to make the experience what it was, but ultimately it was, that was no fun. It was, there was nothing fun about it. Well, are you ready for your first, uh, really, it's your first real derby since 19, right? Because last year, I went last year, and it was incredible, but uh, it, there were only 50,000 people versus your typical 170. Yeah, yeah. And last year, for whatever reason, last year, it was uh, it was just a hard, there was a lot of things going on. It was, it was a challenging year from a race calling perspective. Um, I'm looking forward to um, correcting some of the, the wrongs from last year and getting some things uh back in place this year and having a real derby again. I've got family coming. I've got a cousin who's never been to the derby. He and his wife are coming, which is one of the cool things about working at the derby is every year I try and get a friend or a family to come and, and experience it. We're going to have a full-fledged crowd again. They've done some renovations at the track for some new seating, so it should be a new experience overall. And yeah, just looking forward to uh, a, quote, normal derby. I'm with you. Last year was great because it wasn't that – Crowded, but it was still crowded. It was still, you know, there was, it was still a scene. Uh, but this year we'll be back to having uh, headaches, trying to find a place to park again, you know, which is always a good problem to have on. Yeah. I remember, I think last year was the first, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't want to say post pandemic because ultimately we were still in the middle of it, but it was the first sort of major sporting event. And, and I was there for the two days and you could get around and there was free food and I, I got in for free. Uh, I even on, on Oaks Friday, I even um, I even uh, uh, attended uh, uh, senior seminar presentations uh, from the uh, from the hospitality room. So just things never be able to do this year. And it, it kind of spoiled me. I badly want to go back. But, uh, you know, the, the price is really right last year. Well, let's let's go on and, and talk about, um, you know, let's go put your handicapping hat on and talk about finding a derby horse. I know you watch all the preps and you get, you know, you start thinking about this, um, even though you don't bet the derby, you start thinking about this beforehand and, and sort of just sort of starting out, what do you sort of look for in a derby horse? Yeah. So <clears throat> obviously calling the race, I have to call each horse, even if I don't think they're a derby horse. So I, I put some preparation in place for all of them, period. Um, but I definitely focus more on horses, I believe, are derby horses. And there's a few things that I think about. For one, 
you know, there's been a point system in place now for several years. And I remember back when it first came around, I was very bullish on the fact that I said, I think we're going to have more triple crown winners in the next X number of years than we've had in the last 20. Just because the way the points work is there's not a lot of two-year-old sprint speed in the derby. So I'm looking for horses now, as opposed to back in the 90s, where you, you really wanted to think about coming from off the pace. I look for horses that want to be more forward. Horses that have some tactical speed that will be in the top eight early. So if you're a deep, deep closer, uh, I, I don't look at you quite as much anymore in terms of the derby because the derby pace just has seemed to, to quiet it down quite a bit. Although that's a bit of a misnomer. It still is fast, but just the makeup of the field um, sort of yields a, a better trip for those sort of pace presser types. So that's one thing I look at. I don't pay attention much to the rules of like, you know, X number of starts as a two-year-old. You had to be born on the third week of April, if not the third, then the first or the fourth, you know, whatever. And, you know, those sort mm-hmm. of like uh, goofy uh, sort of, you know, rules that the, the society has tended to follow and thing to the Derby. When I watch their replays, I just want to see horses that are finishing and look like as they go a little bit farther, it's not going to be a problem. Uh, there's still a lot of horses running on the Derby Trail now that look like more sprinter types as opposed to a horse that's truly going to relish that 10th furlong. The difference between 9 and 10 furlongs is so massive. The difference between 9 and 10 is way longer than 8 and 9, even though it's the same technical difference. Uh, that 10th furlong can get to be a lot. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I look for some tactical speed. I look for a horse that finishes their race as well. And then just, of course, it's developing and doing the right things. You know, it's easy to peak as a two-year-old. Horses are like humans. Some of them develop early. Some of them develop later. If you develop too early as a horse, the others catch up to you quickly when the derby rolls around. So just a horse is sort of on the improve and and going in the right direction with each start. You can't make mistakes on the derby trail. You can't miss a race. You can't miss a start. They're fine. Be tuned machines, and the minute you get them off kilter, it's it's hard to to re-rally and recover. No, that that's uh, you know you bring up a number of important points, but uh, the fact that it used to be a race that would have sprinters and would melt down was a consistent thing for the Derby, right? You have yes. horses that yeah. uh, you know, and and as we've talked about in class, a closer in route races is a rare thing right almost rarely happens to do races collapse that are route races yeah. especially races yeah. this long but you know what's interesting is that from 1980 to 2000 from 1980 to 1999 all the favorite didn't win right so we went through this 20-year period where favorites lost and then more recently up until country house we had a string of i think six or seven favorites in a row that won and the Derby has become somewhat of a more consistent race, if, if not so much the last three years uh, have, have sort of veered it back into its realm of un, unpredictability, unpredictability. But I guess, again, as a race caller, you've got to be prepared for anything. The country house scenario, the mind that bird, the Giacomo, they've got to be, you've got to be able to call them into the finish, regardless of what yeah. you think their shot is. <clears throat> no, you do. You just, you have to think of everything, every possible scenario. I think though the, uh, the way the points have affected the race, I'd be lying if I said I didn't definitely uh, tend to favor or bias my prep towards certain groups of horses. That just It just feels like, I don't know what it is with the points. In many ways, I, what I don't like, I think the points have been great, by the way. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt, they have made the race safer and better. 
But just because you run third in the final round of preps, in my opinion, doesn't mean you should bump out the horse that won a late two-year-old race or an early three-year-old race. I, I, that I don't like about it because, um, <clears throat> you know, the horses that the, the term suck up third, where they just sort of plot along and get third. I feel like there's a little too many of those in the Derby now, as opposed to horses that inject a little bit of, of speed and tactical pace. So I think it, you know, it, it just that the nature of the race has changed a little bit. And I would say that's, that's one of the reasons for it. And, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I think even though the favorites have won, we have to also consider that one of the favorites is American Pharaoh. Another favorite was Justify, who obviously went on to win the Triple Crown. They were just really good horses. And I mean, you know if this, when it comes to data, we're probably just in a little bit of a random, you know, trend of, of favorites winning. And I'm sure we're due for some goofiness here or there. But it's certainly going to be harder to achieve with, with the nature of the race nowadays. Do you, uh, you know, to what extent do you think pedigree still plays a role, especially as the breed has gotten more speed oriented? I, I uh, the only time I, I look at pedigree uh, in terms of the Derby is when it really feels like the horse is bred to be a sprinter. Um, as opposed, you know, most of the horses nowadays have more miler-ish pedigrees you know you don't really have a lot of classic distance pedigree we don't run many classic distance races so a lot of horses have more of a milerish pedigree but when there's a horse that really has sprinter pedigree is when i will sort of shy away a little bit um, i'm trying to think of some example sires that are really speed oriented like uh like a spites town i mean he has some runners that have run long but for the most part he's more of a you know a sprinty type sire like if, if the favorite for the Derby was a spice town out of a sprinting mare, like I, I'd be glad to sort of fade a horse like that. If I were betting, you know, that that's the sort of thing I look at as opposed to the, nobody's really bred to go 10 furlongs anymore. So it's kind of hard to look at it from a positive. I look at it more from, from a, a, a way to knock a horse or, or pile up the negatives. Yeah. And I guess even more so it is true that the Derby is an anomalous, right? A mile and a quarter race, fairly early in their three-year-old careers, most horses will never run a mile and a quarter again. Uh, yeah. And, um, and, and that's, you know, what makes it, makes it so unique. And you're absolutely right about the last mile and eighth. And, and those preps tend to be most important because there seems to be a jump from a mile and 16th to a mile and an eighth. Right. So yep. Yep. Um, that's, uh, that's true for sure. Uh, so the, um, I guess with the Arkansas Derby moving back to five weeks, our last prep, major preps will be four weeks out, right? Yeah, which would be the Wood and the... Uh, San Anita Derby. And the San Anita Derby, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, five weeks, uh, whatever. I think it's fine. Like, I don't think I don't think Arkansas and Oakland's going to get an appreciably better field or a worse field by doing that. I think they were, they're going to get the same field. Um, if anything, and I, if I were in the room when they made this decision, I would have said, well, wait a minute. By pushing, by being the last prep, you sort of pick up a minor insurance check of if somebody misses the five-week prep, well, they can still make yours, right? Now they're not going to make yours. Now they have to be ready at five weeks. So I, I'm sort of, uh, I'm sort of torn on it. I, I, the one thing I'm very scared of is I don't want to see horses that are pointing to the Derby start to think about prepping once and going from one three-year-old prep race into the Derby. I'd like to see. I'd like to see these horses race more. And even insofar as I'd like to see some of the late season two-year-old races get more points to encourage these trainers to, to get those two-year-olds going. 
as opposed to the points being mostly distributed on the back end. Let's spread those points a little bit more. It makes the game better. I mean, as you know, these Saturdays leading up to Derby are some of the greatest Saturdays of the year. Like every Saturday, there's some sort of Derby prep we want to tune into. And the, the more that these trainers push back these starts, the less relevant these Saturdays become and the worse off the game is. So I'd like to see some of that stuff change a little bit. And, uh, but yeah, so yeah, the last, uh, you guys would be five weeks out down there and four weeks. And I guess the Lexington is still worth a few, a couple of points yeah, twenty on the fringe or whatever, which actually is probably very relevant this year with, with none of the Baffert horses earning points right now. Right. So like the, the number of points it's going to take to get into the race is probably going to be pretty low, if not zero. And so a race like the Lexington could take on, you know, more significance this year. We'll see how that pans out. No, I agree with you 100% on the, you know, I love the Derby Trail and then the Triple Crown itself because we get to see these horses over and over again. And it creates rivalries and anticipation, you know, versus, you know, by the time we get to the Breeders' Cup, they have their two preps and then really one prep to the Breeders' Cup itself. And we determine championships on the basis of, of one race as opposed to a series of races. So I, I, I agree with that. On the Oakland thing, I'm conflicted because – I'm not sure. I, I, my sense is their field will be basically the same as they would get this three weeks out. No one yep. really preps at Oaklawn. I think they made these changes for for uh, Cox and Asseson, and those guys send their you know still uh, winter their best three year olds at the fairgrounds because uh, Oaklawn's not you know Oaklawn can have bad weather. So mm-hmm. you know, and they're moving from a day that they owned. They owned three weeks before the Derby. Every everyone who followed racing was was uh, in tune to Arkansas to a day that they're going to be lost. Right, the yeah. Florida Derby yeah. will be the the main uh, uh, focus, and so uh, so I think it's a mistake. Even if even if they uh, didn't have the horses that they would like to have, being three weeks out, being the last prep, I think would draw major attention. Look, they're they're three years removed away from being easily the best Derby prep with country house improbable in Omaha beach. So uh, it's, yeah. um, it's an interesting thing. Anyway, look, I appreciate uh, you joining us this, uh, this morning. Good luck uh, calling the Derby in 2022 and for the whole Churchill season. I look forward to seeing you up in Saratoga Springs. Absolutely. And yeah, tell any of your uh, students, if they ever made their way to Churchill to get in touch with me, you know how to get in touch with me and come up, watch a race and, See what it's like on the top floor, the home of the Derby. All right. Thanks again, Chad. Appreciate it. You got it.